0: They're spoilt for choice here, John, they really are. And I think sometimes they don't They just um, realise that they're spoiled for choice. I think a lot of people kind of just assume that the rest of the world has the same sort of access to seafood or well, the multitude of seafoods that we do here, you know, and um, so they don't see it as, as special as it really is, which is a bit of a shame. You know, But they are enthusiastic supporters of it when you kind of get in front of them and talk to them about it. Once we tell them the story behind it, you know, they're right into it.
1: This is the Fishtales podcast, I'm John Sussman. Martin Bosley is one of New Zealand's finest chefs and favourite culinary sons. He has worked in and owned a number of award-winning restaurants and is now running bespoke seafood distribution business, Yellow Brick Road. With a food philosophy inspired by the wealth of great local ingredients, Bosley is a recognised leader in developing a broad, rich and exciting New Zealand cuisine a cuisine that reflects a country of diverse, multicultural tastes and stellar produce. He's a fan of the heroic efforts of Kiwi winemakers, farmers, cheesemakers and most of all fishermen. Boz is one of the co-founders of Wellington's iconic City Market and a champion of the iconic New Zealand food festival, Wellington on a Plate moving from chef and restaurateur to fishmonger was a leap of faith for bosley whose eternal optimism and drive for excellence was at odds with the traditional operating mandate of many fishermen but has been embraced by many as the fruit of his efforts are reflected in the returns fishermen are getting on the wharf by his own admission boz loves fish and shellfish more than just about any other foodstuff and there's nothing he enjoys more than catching his own fish and eating it straight away Boz loves the New Zealand coastline because it allows him to eat according to the environment and the season. Like most Kiwis, Boz was immersed in the process of catching and cooking seafood from a very early age.
0: I think it's always been a passion one. I mean my early years of cooking were in um, sort of fine dining and, uh, and then later on to brasseries. And you couldn't really get a lot of seafood in New Zealand at that time? Uh, it was pretty. It was pretty basic and uh, a, a blank landscape. So, especially usual, the brasseries it was sort of more offal and you know, long, you know, lamb shanks and slow cooked meats and that sort of thing. Um, but I just knew that I was, you know, like the seafood was. You know, I got. I always got more excited by the sight of a piece of fish than I did about a piece of, uh, you know, about a fillet like steak coming in. Uh, and then I spent um, actually I spent about five or six years in uh, in uh, in your fair country, um, living and working up in Port Douglas. And I just saw some beautiful seafood happening up there. And when I came back to New Zealand, I thought, right, I know what I want to do now, and that is, I wanted to open uh, a seafood restaurant. And the landscape hadn't changed much, um, but I just started pushing a whole lot harder against the people who were supplying fish, and became generally very annoying. And uh, and said, so, look, you know, these are the things that I want, and you know, I believe they're out there. Uh, and slowly but surely, you know, the uh, you know, I so say that landscape did change. And I guess it's just always been. You know, I mean, it's, I mean, while I enjoy still enjoy cooking meat, I think I've always just enjoyed cooking seafood more, and I think it offers you a, a far greater range of of options and flavor profiles and methods of cookery, and you know, whatever you can do to meat, you can do to a piece of fish, right? But uh, but beef tends to taste like beef, you know, whereas fish, just you know, every species is different and offers you you know obviously something different, and uh, just you know, whether you're in the you know you're in the northern hemisphere or the southern hemisphere. We kind of, you know, we kind of recognise our local species. Um, you know, we, we, you know, we know that the oysters on the, uh, you know, on the on the west coast of Australia or the east coast of coast, Australia and the west coast of America. And you know, again, those, those sort of things are just those. Uh, in terms of provenance, seafood is uh, is probably the greatest one.
1: The influence chefs have had on the quality and consistency of seafood supply cannot be underestimated. Through open and clear dialogue both the catchers and cooks can learn how to get more from what is caught as chefs travel they've had the opportunity to see and learn passing this knowledge back to fishermen
0: like a lot of chefs um, like myself who traveled overseas and had seen you know um, a wider range of fish species available started returning home and we weren't happy with what we were saying or you know what we were being offered so we really started to put the so the pressure on uh, you know on our fishermen for, um, well, and not it was and it wasn't even so much initially about a greater range of species being offered. It was, you know, initially it was about the way the fish was being handled. You know, we had guys here who were fantastic at catching fish, but just absolutely rubbish at either getting it to the market or, or what to you know how to handle it once they'd landed it. Um, you know, you know, they, and they'd, they'd got it off the back deck of the boat. You know, not my, you know, I used to get fish in a plastic shopping bag wrapped up. You know, in a cardboard box, no gel packs or anything, like that. and you just, you know, and, I, and in fact, I used to go down to the local I, you know, the, uh, the uh, fishmongers here in Wellington, and um, there'd be Greeks and the just standing around, and there'd be these bins lined up, literally in the driveway, uh, with flies buzzing around, and these old guys, that you know, and some sometimes you know, these cigarettes would be resting on the side of the fish bins, and I'd go, can I, you know, they'd, yeah, just help yourself, mate, just you know, just weigh on the scales when your way out, let us know what you got. It was just so. So, sort of you know, free and and, and terrible, um, and also we you know we became aware that the, that our best fish was being exported, uh, and I remember one day standing at inside uh, this particular fishmonger's and I said, "You got any harpooker? And they said, "No, nah, no, nah, we've got we've got no harpooker at all, mate. Sorry." And at that exact moment, this forklift went past you with this great big bin on it, just full of this beautiful gleaming harpooker. and I said, "Well, what's what's that then?" And he said, "Oh no, you can't have that, mate. So that's all for export." I said, Okay, look, things are things. You know, things have got to change. Like, so we do have harpooned. It's all going, you know, I said, I will pay whatever you're getting exported to get some of that fish, and they were like, No, 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 you guys won't pay that kind of money, mate. So we were being, we were being robbed of the opportunity to, to, to buy some of the best fish. Uh, we were being robbed of the, some of the species that we that, that I'd later found out were being exported, uh, and what I, I, I thought at a, a massive undervalue because we didn't understand the value of the fish that we're catching here. No, we didn't understand how the um, you know, how a Japanese market, for instance, values stargazer, monkfish. You know, here we were just like, Oh, look, it's just a bottom feeder, mate, no one likes that. We used to chop it up and call it poor man's crayfish. Mix it with the crayfish tails, about the crayfish go further. You know, we I mean, always these, these these things were happening. And I just think so it was it was a it's a very long way of answering your question where but I think it was driven by the chefs who were pushing the fishermen and the fishermen then started to push the chefs. And so Well if you want this stuff you better, you know, you're gonna have to use it and uh, and you know, and and and, and 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 mainly pay for it.
1: As with other countries, New Zealand's 300 nautical kilometre exclusive economic zone gives its fishing industry special fishing rights. It covers 4.1 million square kilometres, making it the fourth largest exclusive economic zone in the world, and is 14 times the land area of New Zealand itself. New Zealand enjoys a rich and unusually complex underwater topography. Over 15,000 marine species are known to live there, about 10% of the world's diversity. Many of these are migratory species, but New Zealand's isolation means also that many of the marine species are unique to New Zealand.
0: People always ask about, you know, uh, New Zealand, you know, New Zealand cuisine. What is New Zealand cuisine? How do you define it? We don't really have I'm a bit like Australia, you know. You can't really say well, that, you know, our cuisine is this. It's not, it's not like French or Italian cuisine. So what really defines us as two things. One is the quality of our produce. All right, people come in and go, my God, this is you know, it is just such great quality, and that's because we've got you know we've got really good soil, we've got an ambient climate, and we've got pristine waters in which you know to uh, to harvest or, um, uh, or, or or grow our fish. Um, but we become really parochial. We become defined by our regions by the fish that we eat, and that's largely driven by what we go out and catch, either just a surf casting or just when we go out in the tinny and just, you know, take the boat out, what we, you know, what we catch. So, you know, like in Auckland, for instance, that's, um, that's snapper country, you know, snapper and hapuka. Um, you know, you'll find very few aug- Aucklanders will go for a John Dory or will even go near blue cod because blue cod is a southern fish and that's what the southerners eat. Um Butterfish, butterfish is like it is Wellington's fish. Butterfish and talakehi, or Tākikī, as you guys would say, uh, you know, is, is is regional to sort of Wellington. So um, we get a bit of snapper off the west coast of uh, 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 New Zealand, and they would argue that it's a, it's a it's a much better eating snapper than that that's coming off the east coast. Um, you know, we sort of you know we'd argue quite vociferously about these things. White bait is better off the you know off the west coast of the South Island than it is off the east coast of the North Island. Um, and again, people, you know, they'll, they'll argue those regional differences as being which one, uh, you know, which one is better. Um, you know, again, the power, you know, power isn't, um, isn't always around uh, the whole coast. It tends to be just around the, down the east coast of New Zealand. And it's between sort of, you know, quite a defined area. And we love it on this side of the country and on the west, on the, over on the west coast, not so keen.
1: Every culture has foods which are special to their culture, the place and the people. Locals always claim their local special food is significant and transforming. Rarely do these special foods create the raw emotion, pride and protectionist attitude of two seasonal specialties found in New Zealand. Both white and bluff oysters have cult status in the land of the long white cloud. Whilst rarely exported, both white bait and bluff oysters have global acclaim alongside the New Zealand all-black rugby team and the most famous indigenous fruit, the kiwi. Yeah, white
0: bait is, is, is an actually fascinating um, the, the fish itself is fascinating. So there's five mostly um, five species that make up the white bait family, all called Enunga. <coughs> so excuse me, well, they're, they're a corpua, banded corpua, small fish, totally translucent. Um, and uh, so when you catch them, you do you um, they're a they're a freshwater fish, but they come in from the salt water. They come in at a certain time of the year. They'll start, usually they start in around um, you know, sort of August, September is when the um, the, the season will get going for that. Um, and when you catch them, you sort of, you know, you know you'll take your net down to the river. And you'll have a river net, um, which is, you know, like a like a bit of a basket that's got a trap in it. And you put these white strips of plastic or road cone or um, uh, white bit of plastic colouring down into the riverbed, so you can see the fish as they swim across the top because they've got these little, I see these little banded black lines that run down the length of them. And we regard it as a huge delicacy. Uh, and it's the sort of fish that every that every man can catch because you can just go down the river and throw a net in. And you put your little uh, netting fence up around it, which is you know mandated by law as to how big that can be. Um, and you'll claim your little spot on the edge of the river, and uh, and you just you'll pass away a, a day. Just you know, and you might get one white bait, or you might get um, you know several hundred kilos, depending on where you are and and what's going on. Uh, there's there's still no quota around it, which I find extraordinary. You know, when everything else here is so carefully managed by the quota system, there's nothing around white bait. I think that will change. There's there's, there's Rumours that that was that's going to change, because urban development is having quite a, um, a profound effect uh, upon the white bait population. There's some that believe that it'll be extinct soon, so the you know uh, some think there should be a moratorium on the on the white bait catching for the next couple of years, just to do some careful study on it. Um, but we um, you know it's 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 so simple. You know, you'll, there's again the, you know the cams are divided as to the best way of eating it. One is do you put it into a fritter, and if and then it, you'll argue again as to how you make that fritter. Does it? Do you have egg whites in yours or do you use a whole egg? I mean, what are you doing, mate? You've got flour in there. You don't put flour in there. You know, you've know, got baking powder in that, mate. No, 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 mate. You're a charlatan. You know, Or, uh, or sauteed, you know, which is just with a bit of flour, a bit of butter. And, a, and, a, and some would even argue that, that, that the one clove of garlic that I put in there is just heresy when I do it. And it's beautiful, you know. And it's just, and we're you know, we're not a nation of freshwater fish eaters here at all. Where you know we are saltwater fish, we uh, we all think that freshwater fish just tastes muddy because it's just, you know, we don't eat trout in this country because it's just like it tastes like bugs, right? Bugs and mud. Um, but free, but but white bait, white bait's the one that we uh, that you know gloves come off. We're all, we're all you know we're all in there, uh, and uh, and we'll be down there, you know, down there fishing. My mother-in-law, mate, she was mad for it. She used to. This is a true story. My mother used to. Um, Come hell or high water, no matter what the weather was, she would be down on the Waikanae River white baiting when the when the season started, and in, into her eighties, right. And one day there was this. God, I've got so many stories about it. One day there was this huge storm, massive storm, and I got home, and she said she'd been out white baiting, and she and I said, "What on the river?" in this, and she said, yeah, "Yeah." I said, "Jesus Christ!" I said, "There was no one else down there." She said, "No, no one else." I was the only one on the river. That's what made it so good. And I said, "How come you didn't get swept away in this?" And she said, "Oh no, no. So I was careful. So I tied myself to a tree on the bank." And she literally got a rope out, tried it around her waist, and tied to the tree to make sure she wouldn't get swept downstream. That's how committed she was to getting white bait that day. Mad, absolutely mad. And that's and that's and that's you know and that's just you know, white bait stories abound, mate. You know. but, um, but uh, yeah, no, it's a, it's a it's a it's a great it's a great little fish. So bluff oyster, I mean, it's the last wild dredge oyster on the planet. All you know, as you know, all us, all, the, all other oysters tend to be farmed. Um, and those deep cold waters of uh, of the Fovo Strait incredibly tough conditions to go you know to go fishing in um, and, you know it makes uh, you know deadliest catch look like a calm day out in the water down there. I've never seen men work so hard mate on the back of a boat. And this is the very bottom right so you get you get yeah so like you know you you know you, you, you leave bluff at the bottom of the South island right and you go out of the fovo Strait next stop is Antarctica there is nothing between you and the snow and the ice right so the, you know the wind comes up there and the, the chill that goes right through you cuts you to the bone. And these rolling seas—if you're not pitching, you're rolling. It's just extraordinary, right? It's rough as hell. And uh, these men are out there, and um, so it's a dredge oyster. So they drop the dredge over the side of the side of the boat, and it goes around. There's about 14 boats as the as the entire fleet, bluff fleet. Uh, and they'll go out and they'll they'll fish the season. And uh, the season season starts one one March and goes through till usually sort of end of May June, depending on again on uh, it's quite heavily managed by the quota system. Um, it's a flat, um, you know, a, a European flat shell oyster. It's the only one we have in this country. Um, and it's just, I say, because that, you know, those cold, um, those cold, cold waters, it's just, it's high in the sort of zinc minerality. It's got a high saline content because of wheat, you know, because of where it is. It's, it's these sort of silt beds. There's a sort of four rivers that I'm sort of pour into, out into the 5 Strait, And they carry with it quite a bit of silt that goes out there and the oysters just sit there. Um, and uh, they are one of the one of the greatest delicacies known to man. They are just beautiful. I've got a punnet in the fridge as we speak for my supper later on. They are so good. And so, and again, you know, yeah. And it's just again, it's a regional, it's it's a, it's a seasonal thing as well. Like, you know, all the other oyster farmers may as well just shut up shop the the moment the bluffies, bluff oyster season starts because no one wants any other oyster to eat. And i always tell chefs like just take all the entrees off your menus, mate, because you know you're not going to sell anything other than bluff oysters. People go nuts for it. It'll be 60, 60 bucks a dozen, but all of a sudden people don't care.
1: Kiwis have a natural affinity with nature. Hunting and fishing, whilst being staunch protectors of the flora and fauna that surrounds them, is built into their psyche from an early age. Whilst foraging has become an on-trend phenomenon amongst the uber-cool chefs of the world, it's most commonly considered just a weekend at the batch for the average New Zealander.
0: So much of their stuff is like in that, is in that tidal zone, right? That um, you could just. Go out, you know, you, you know, you wiggle your toes in the sand, and you're gonna, you know, you're gonna come up with, uh, with, a, you know, with, with a fistful of, uh, of tuatu or pippy or something. Um, so it's just, you know, it, it just, I always, it always used to make me laugh when I read about chefs overseas like going, you know, doing this whole new thing called foraging, and we're to go and forage for our fitness. like we grow up doing that. You know, we spend our weekends doing that. Like foraging is not a new thing here, and so if, you know, for the history of eating clams and whatever, you know, we, you know, we love it. I mean. You know, um, family background is that, you know, the, the, you know, the clams would get foraged in the, you know, of a, of a Saturday afternoon and they get put in a bucket with a couple of crumbled wheat picks and that, you know, that would clean the clams out overnight and the next day, you know, you are be beating these beautiful, clean clams. Um, and they've got somebody like Cloudy Bay Clams, of course, you know, the, um, uh, the, the Piper Boys and what they've done and they've just taken the whole thing to a whole new level of, uh, you know, of the, the, their clams are just beautiful. So, you know, they're just so clean. Um, you know, that's the Tour Tour and the Diamond Shell and the Storms. But big surf clams uh, with just, you know, each one, again, according to where it comes from, has got a different flavour profile, sort of more butterscotch or minerality to it. And yeah, you know, we, uh, we love them. We absolutely love them.
1: The relationship between artisan, fisherman, distributor, and chef is symbiotic. They need each other to foster and grow. The information flow in both directions ensures that the best seafood is treated in the best ways, both on the water and in the pan. Fostering the development of small fishes can be a labour of love and often without direct reward. Without the input of the likes of Martin Bosley, many small fishers would not get the rewards they enjoy.
0: Yellowbrick Road, for instance, you know, the, the, the fish business that I manage, you know, we're, you know, we're really keen advocates and supporters of those um, of those little artisan guys that are, that, you know, that are out there doing it. You know, it's an it's a inshore fleet, day boats, skipper and a deckhand going out there and they, you know, they're fishing for, you know, a few hours at a time or, or, or overnight and coming in and landing that fish. Um, and we're really big on supporting that because it's not just about, you know, you know, you know the quota management system is great and it's a, about maintaining a sustainable level of, Fish supply, but so sustainability also extends to the communities around there, right? And you know, some of our you know, our great little towns like you know, like Gisborne, Light like Bluff, uh, New Plymouth, for instance, Fitianga up there, they were actually built around fisheries. And you know, these you know, the, the guys out of Lee, you know, you know, Lee Fish and what they've been doing up there, um, you know, these 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 guys going out in their day boats, and you know, the, the darn just the big boys coming in with the trawlers. Uh, so it's, we think it's really important to support them. Um, obviously, they have their issues, you know. Um, uh, but you know, we're in it for the long haul with them, and, and our aim has always been to work with them to get them to a you know, to a gold star standard, really.
1: As a ninety five percent net exporter of seafood caught and grown in New Zealand, seafood's importance to the economy is significant. But this almost exclusive focus on export has meant that for a long time, the domestic market has been starved of both range and quality of seafood caught in its own local waters. These days. Through the work of local seafood advocates like Martin Bosley, the range, quality, and value of seafood offered to the domestic market has never been better.
0: They're spoiled for choice here, John. They really are, and I think sometimes they don't—they just—they um, do don't realise that they're spoiled for choice. I think a lot of people kind of just assume that the rest of the world has the same sort of access to seafood or well, the multitude of seafoods that we do here, you know, and um, so they don't see it as how unique or as 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 special as it really is, which is a bit of a shame. Um, but they are, you know, but they are enthusiastic supporters of it. When you kind of get in front of them and talk to them about it, once we tell them the story behind it, you know, they're right into it. And most of our guys, especially who we work with, um, they want to know the story and they want to know the provenance of it and they want to know, you know, the, you know the name of the boat. They want to meet the guy if possible. They they want that connection. Back through to, I want to know, can you tell me about the guy that caught the fish? Because you know, that sort of stuff used to be airy fairy, right? But now also, you know, they're using it as a selling tool to talk to their guests about it. Because their guests are actually asking them that question now, because they're reading food magazines that tell them to ask those questions. So they have to be better armed, right, with uh, you know, with the knowledge. So the chefs are sort of seeing a high value in you know, sourcing that those kind of, you know, those kind of ingredients or that. That level of ingredient, I, uh,
1: I should say. Boz is excited about the prospects for New Zealand seafood. He firmly believes the future is bright, with an intergenerational change bringing fresh new ideas and new approaches.
0: So you know, young you know, young guys. You have got young Nathan down there at Gravity Fishing. Um, again, he's out. You know, he's out of Bluff. Um, uh, you know, he's um, he's you know, uh, part of the Irwin family. You know, which is New Zealand's oldest fishing family, or uh, well, longest fishing thing, I should say. Um, you know, and he's and he's a young guy, and he's and he's really bringing like you know a great attitude to to what he's doing. You know, he's line catching. He's he's big on the uh, on the social media as well, like showing people what he's doing and you know the you know the live catch, which has been great in making people aware of what's going. You know, of actually just what goes into you know getting the fish to uh, to the to their plate, basically. Um, some some of the fishmen are getting out of it because you know the, the young folk don't want to get into it, but we're you know, we are seeing a high level of enthusiasm. So, of young people that want to get in and they want to change what's been going on, you know, like the the whole idea of trawling, you know, because of course the young people go, you know, they focus on sustainability, right, That's that's the language they've grown up speaking. And they go, look, you know, what granddad was doing and what dad was doing, ain't going to work anymore and we need to modernise this whole thing up. So it's a really exciting time here, I think, in terms of those smaller fishing families, um, you, know, with the, with, you know, with the young folk coming through and getting actively involved in, uh, in what's going on and, uh, and, and changing the way they do things. Very exciting.
1: The New Zealand seafood scene is dynamic and changing. Underpinned by some of the single largest fisheries in the world, run by large corporate fishing companies, there is also an emerging next generation of catcher and grower, who are harnessing the natural Kiwi hunter-gatherer approach with new levels of quality and communication. It is indeed exciting times in the land of the long white cloud. This is the Fish Tales podcast, a Deep in the Weeds production. I'm John Sussman. Stay tuned for more tales from beneath the surface of the seafood world.